Hey, welcome everyone to episode three of season five of the Northern Spin podcast. My name is Michael Taylor. By day, I'm the editor of thebusinessdesk.com. At the risk of sounding like my co-presenter, Chris Maguire, him here, right here, we've got some good news. That's right, Michael. We've got two bits of good news, actually. I uh, spoke to Sean Hines of Manchester Central last week, and it's literally just a question of when we want the 10,000-seater auditorium for our uh, big show. Um, but on a serious note, Specialist Lender, Assets Capital, is our latest sponsor, and we're going to hear from them later. We've also had some really nice feedback from former police hostage negotiator, Nigel Taberner, who wrote on Twitter, I don't use the term X, the podcast just gets better by the week. Oh, that's amazing. Thank you very much, Nigel. Chris, you hosted six events last week. So what political insight are you bringing from those events to this week's Northern Spin? Yeah, we talk about insight all the time, actually. I chatted to a number of MPs and business leaders. So the first thing we're going to talk about follows reports that the government is going to bin off the stretch of line from Birmingham to Manchester for High Speed 2. Um, I should say that business minister, who I interviewed at the Warrington Business Conference on Friday, a chap called Kevin uh, Hollenrake, described me as Warrington's answer to Ricky Gervais. Or, or David Brent, was it? Or was it Ricky I Gervais? think it was more Ricky Gervais. Okay. Well, I think Ricky Gervais should sue for that comparison, frankly. Um, anyway, on the podcast this week, I want to talk about Baroness Charlotte Owen of Alderley Edge, who was appointed to the House of Lords by Boris Johnson at the age of 29. I also want to talk about Matthew Brown, not the brewery in Lancashire, but the leader of Preston City Council, who described Preston as the alternative city, which is overblown nonsense in my view. Well, I've got some views on that as well. Nationally, I think we're going to talk about the fact that it does feel like we're on an election footing. Labour have upped the ante at long last, and we've got some announcements from Keir Starmer. Um, before all that, though, we've got a few thank yous, starting with our producers, What Media, who expertly produce this podcast every single week. They're the unsung heroes of the Northern Spin podcast, the kings of video content creation, and they turn our weekly ramblings into the hit podcast and YouTube show that is Northern Spin. That's right, and uh, What Media really do go above and beyond. I'd also like to thank our headline sponsors, FI Real Estate Management. <laughs> FI Real Estate Management is headquartered in Chorley, Lancashire, but has a network of properties across the UK which tenants can tap into. They can also cater for everyone from a one-man band working from home and needing space to enterprise customers wanting a whole building. They don't just work in one sector, they work across the office, commercial and industrial markets. FI Real Estate Management pride themselves on growing with their customers on their journey. If you need space, contact FI Matthew Pickles in particular. Right, Chris, so let's talk about HS2. Is it the end of the line for Britain's biggest rail engineering project in a generation? Quick recap, HS2 was first mooted in 2009. HS1, of course, was the railway through your old neck of the woods, Kent, to the Channel Tunnel near Folkestone from uh, London. It originally started from uh, Waterloo, then it went all the way through the Kent countryside. Uh, it now goes to a terminus at St Pancras. Costs have escalated, and last week the government refused to guarantee the future of the HS2 rail line between Birmingham and Manchester. Andy Burnham is rightly furious and tweeted, levelling up my arse. For what it's worth, my issue on this, I'm going to stop ranting in a minute, has always been this has been missold. It was supposed to be about capacity. 
but it was never explained what new trains will go on the West Coast Main Line when the London to Manchester trains are going to be running on HS2. It was meant to link up to the St Pancras Eurostar terminal initially, which meant you could get direct trains from Manchester to Paris and Brussels. That was the first compromise. That didn't happen. The terminus was then going to be at Euston. Secondly, there was always the risk that it wouldn't actually be two-way, that it would end up being a talent funnel to increase London's reach rather than the other way around. And thirdly, if HS2 really was about getting the north better infrastructure, then why didn't they build it from the north first, effectively connecting Birmingham and places in the Midlands to Manchester Airport and the city centre? What do you think? That, Michael, is not a rant. That's a uh, well-rounded opinion. I think High Speed 2 is an object lesson on how not to do major infrastructure projects. I remember when I became the editor of Northwest Insider, following in your footsteps, and one of my first front pages was a picture of High Speed 2 and, you know, the future. And, like, that was 2011, if my memory serves me correct. You know, it's just to give you a scale of how long it was ago, 2012, something like that. And, and I remember speaking to Howard Bernstein, the Chief Executive of Manchester Council at the time, and he said, Chris, it's not about getting from Manchester to London quicker, it's about capacity, and we have to get improved capacity. So yeah, It was actually Howard who sold me on the basis that it was about getting from Manchester to connecting better to Europe. Yeah. That's not going to happen if you kind of pitch up at Euston and then have to walk down with your suitcase up to St Pancras. It's no, ridiculous. It's, it's ridiculous. We're but missold, compromise after compromise. I think Andy Burnham summed it up best in the second half of the tweet, which you mentioned earlier when he said, uh, levelling up my ass. And he said, the government is guilty of gross mismanagement of High Speed 2 uh, and of making the North pay for their future. Just quick mention of a couple of uh, salient facts. 2021, the eastern leg of uh, HS2 to Leeds was scrapped. A lot of people think it's about faster trains to London. It's actually, as we've discussed about, you know, improving the capacity in our creaking nail yeah, ne uh, rail it, network. Do you think it is, though? Um, I, yeah, I mean, I think it's I think it's dressed up. I mean, I think the thing more is more trains from Stoke to Stockport, for instance. I just don't see it. I don't see the demand for the services that it's it's free freeing up capacity for, or indeed the um, the increasing freight traffic on the uh, on the West Coast Main Line as well. I don't see it. Well, I interviewed uh, the business minister. Kevin Hollenrake and... Uh, he the uh, one that called you Ricky Gervais? Yeah, he right. did, yeah, he did, yeah. Um, but, uh, and, and I said to him, hey, listen, tell us about the reports about High Speed 2 and the fact that the government are going to bin off the link to Manchester from Birmingham. And he said, his exact words were, don't believe everything you read in oh the media. Dear. Oh dear, what does that mean? That is, to me, that just sounds like typical snooty Tory deflection. Well, actually, was, I was quite impressed with him, actually. Um, oh, you're such a sucker for a smooth talk. You know what, actually? I was going to get a picture taken with him and the uh, other MPs there, and I thought, no, if I do that, I'll just get stick from Michael Taylor. Um, well, what, you will anyway. Yeah, right? you will, yeah. So you might um, as well. What was interesting was the conversation, and this is where I think the, um, the argument is, the conversation quickly turned from improving high-speed two, to, to improving rail services from the east to west in the Northern Powerhouse Rail. Now, a lot of people refer to um, Northern Powerhouse Rail as like high-speed three, and the idea behind it, it will connect the cities across the north. I mean, a lot of people think it's just uh, weasel words. Uh, Hollingrake, who, who, as I mentioned, came across quite well, didn't have any cheap digs at the Labour Party, which a lot of Conservative MPs do, highlighted the product disparity in London and the southeast compared to the north. And I pinned him down with a question about this because I said, look, I said, you talk about this productivity disparity between the south, east and the north, but surely, 
I said the biggest issue is the transport disparity between the north and the south. And what did he say in response to that zinger of a question from you? He said to me, he said, Chris, that's the best question I've ever been asked and you really should have your own TV show. Um, the point he was making, he didn't try and shy away from the fact that we've got this north side divide in terms of our transport network. He didn't commit to anything because it's way above his pay grade as well. Um, but the impression I got was that the reason this high-speed two announcement came out last week and the reason the government haven't denied it is because they're going to say something as regards to the east-west service. The problem they've got, the clock's ticking, we're a year away from an election. Really, I mean, they are, in all essence, a zombie government. Yeah, so you also had Warrington South Tory MP Andy Carter on your panel, surrounded by all these Tories. You'd have been in yep. your element, yeah. wouldn't you? So what did he have to say about it? Um, well, Andy Carter's quite an interesting character, actually. I quite, uh, I quite oh, like Andy Carter. Another Tory that you quite yeah, like. Yeah, yeah. Um, Call surprise. Call yeah. me surprise. <laughs> I don't like every Tory MP. I just thought he was, he stands by what he believes in. Um, he was speaking about the same. He said, look, when he goes on the doorstep and he's interviewing oh, people. Phone's going. I think it's Jake Berry with your instructions. <laughs> no, Jake Berry isn't one of my uh, favourite Tory MPs. Go on, carry on. Um, I'm interrupting. No, but Andy, um, Andy Carter said that when he's on the doorstep, interviewing people. He said nobody talks to him about high speed 2. Nobody talks to him about going down to London on a train 20 minutes uh, less than it currently takes. What they do talk about is the, connect the um, connectivity across the north, getting from Manchester to Leeds, getting from Liverpool to Newcastle. Those sort of journeys take ridiculous amounts of time and from a business point of view, they, um, you know, they're just not happening. Uh, we had an audience of about 200 people at this event and it was, uh, it was at Cineworld and, and I asked the audience, I said, right, hands up. I said, Hands up who wants high-speed two with a connection between Manchester and Birmingham. And there was probably three or four hands, not many, maybe ten at most. I said, who wants east-west services? And probably half the room, three-quarters of the room, they put their hands up. And Andy Carter said, that's what I'm hearing on the doorstep. What I would say, this has become a conversation between an either and an or. This isn't high-speed two with improved connectivity in the north and an east-west high-speed connection, it's become, okay, which one can you choose? At the moment, and this guy put his hand up, I said, any questions from the audience? He said, look, you're talking about high-speed too, you're talking about east-west, it would just be nice to get a train that turns up on time. Yeah. And then, talking about a Labour politician, Charlotte Nichols said, you know, in London, when you're at the underground and it flashes up, he said, the next, the next train will take six minutes, people complain about it, the next underground to Acton is going to take six minutes. Oh, six minutes, what am I going to do? He said, yeah. you know, in the northwest, yeah. you'd die for that. Yeah, we don't have a high-frequency service except the, the closest thing, I guess, is the uh, Merseyside underground in Liverpool, in Liverpool city centre out to the Burbs and the Manchester Metrolink. What do you anyway, think? What do you think? Well, I think it's over. I think HS2, I think they're trying to bury it, or at least it's another poison pill being left by the Tories for Starmer's incoming government. And I noticed over the weekend... Again, Labour politicians weren't falling for the trap that's being set for them. Will you commit to HS2 when the Tories are saying potentially that it's not fundable or they're trying to cut costs on it because the nation can't afford it? Either way, we've been consistently lied to over railway, uh, big infrastructure announcements. The crossrail in Manchester is what's needed. Actually, um, the surface-level bottleneck between... Uh, the Ords will cord just by the as you come into Manchester from the west side and Piccadilly Station at the south east side. That is hugely congested. Piccadilly Station's platforms 13 and 14. Now they're high frequency services because they're trains that come in from everywhere and go out to everywhere. And that's what makes journey time so much more difficult. 
Final one for me. We've not mentioned him for a while. Uh, Middlesbrough MP Simon Seven Weeks Clark, who was briefly the Leveling Up Minister in Liz Truss's government, says that we should 100% scrap Phase 2. No great surprise there. But compare that with the views of former Siemens boss Jürgen Meyer, somebody that we've both interviewed. He said if it's true that the government are going to cancel the Birmingham to Manchester link, the government is, quote, just about to cancel levelling up. Um, now, Michael, you want to talk about Baroness Charlotte Owen of Audley Edge, who was appointed to the House of Lords by Boris Johnson at the age of 29, seemingly having done very little to justify that. Fill your boots. Yeah, so I find the whole sociological drama of Alderley Edge fascinating, as you probably know. It's where I set my comic thriller, my novel, 40 by 40, about a Cheshire bad boy businessman called Roger Cashmore. It was full of absurd characters, uh, many of them based on real people, by the way. But even my lurid imagination couldn't have come up with a character like Baroness Charlotte Owen. She was awarded a peerage by Boris Johnson. People... Now, Looking at Boris Johnson's dishonours list, as it, as it became known, people were horrified by what some people who were being given honours had actually done when they were in government. The thing about Charlotte Owen was um, she'd been an intern for George Osborne, supposedly. She'd uh, worked in Boris Johnson's team, but nobody could have any recollection whatsoever about anything that she actually did. And it was an absolutely brilliant Tortoise Media podcast about her. And there is just so little known that it's absolutely fascinating. What, what, do you, what, was, what was your observations on it? I listened to the same Tortoise Media podcast as well. And like yeah, I thought it was excellent. Yeah. But it was basically, we haven't found anything that she's done before, after or during. I don't think she's made any speeches. Nope. I mean, even when she was sworn in, it looked contrived. She didn't um, seem to have any interest in politics prior to actually going to work for Boris Johnson. And, and, and it turned out that the whole, did she work for George Osborne, turned out, well, George Osborne didn't have interns in his office. She might have handed out a few leaflets in Wilmslow or Alderley Edge for the Tories. I think she describes herself as an intern, but I think she was like doing work experience for three yeah. weeks. Yeah. Um, and it's just, she just had this period of about 18 months when she, uh, you know, had the ear of Boris Johnson. I do need to mention one thing, actually, before I give you a response. But um, I remember your book, 40 by 40, and uh, I checked last night, actually. It is still available on Amazon for the ridiculously cheap price of £3.43. That's the grey market for you. It has a review rating of 4.4 out of 5, which is only marginally less than Northern Spin. Am I right in thinking... Do you know why I haven't got a higher rating? Why? Yeah, because one person gave it two stars. One person, which has dragged it down. That person has only ever reviewed two books, right? Yeah. Mine that got a negative review and another book, which he gave five stars to, and in my review he says my book wasn't as good as the other book. I'd rather suspect it was the author, Matthew Corrigan. <laughs> well, Mr. Corrigan, if you want to come on and deny that to him, I think there might be the bones of another book there. Um, now, this, there's this theory about Boris, Jones, uh, about Boris Johnson that he came up with his resignation dishonours lift and he decided, he put like 100 names in originally, including his dad Stanley, which got uh, knocked out. And yeah. uh, thankfully, Nadine Doris got bumped off the list as well. Um, and he shoved Charlotte Owen in, really, as a bit of a poke in the eye to the establishment. Yeah. And every time somebody looks at Charlotte Owen and gets riled, he, you know, he has a smile, a wry smile to himself. Now, you'd think to yourself, that's ridiculous, but then you think, well, we're talking about Boris Johnson and he'll do anything. I don't want to demonise Charlotte Owen, I don't, but she did virtually nothing to become a lifelong peer. And look at all the people who've made remarkable contributions and would actually add something to the House of Lords. But just remember this, right? Every time she sits in the House of Lords, because they're not paid, she gets an allowance... £332 a day. She's in this post for the rest of her life. 
So you work it out how much money she could take off us, the taxpayer, over the course of her lifetime and for what? You know, for making Boris Johnson yeah. a cup of tea. It's an absolute disgrace. Yeah, yeah. I, I just, the, the whole thing is nobody really knows what she did. I think maybe making a cup of tea might be a bit demeaning, but we'll see. Something else you want to, uh, you've got on your eye horse about this week. Uh, Matthew Brown, the leader of Preston Council. Been getting your dander up. Well, only a little bit. So Preston is going to be hosting the This is the North Convention by the People's Powerhouse, which we did a live event at last year, do you remember? Yeah, I do, yeah. Uh, Available for other live events, by the way, kids. Um, Anyway, Matthew Brown, who shares his name with the brewery in Lancashire, uh, described Preston as the alternative city. So it gave me the opportunity to have one of my regular rants about the Preston economic model. Have you ever heard of the Preston economic model? Not the term, the Preston economic model. Okay, so um, they talk about it like it's socialism in action, but in reality, it's a bit of local procurement and the championing of social enterprises. I wrote a paper on it, and, and it attempts to pick up, which my paper attempts to pick apart the wider claims, giving due credit instead to Preston being the birthplace of a different centre-left economics in Lancashire County Council in the 1980s, which set up a venture capital arm. Do you remember Lancashire Enterprises and Enterprise PLC? and Probably before my time, no, no. Well, anyway, yes. Okay. You, you, you were probably at school in Kent yeah. when they were doing all that, weren't you? But, um, but, you, but you live up in that part of the world. Do you think that when you go into Preston, it is the alternative city, the, the beacon of kind of community socialism? I've probably got a slightly different view. I do agree with some of what you said. I think the fact that this is the North Convention is coming to... Preston is a positive. It's a bit like yeah, when... Yeah. I, I, for, for the record, yeah. I, don't, I don't dispute that. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. great that it's you know it's been in Sunderland, Bradford, Doncaster and Manchester and it's great that it's going to, um, going to Preston. It's a bit like when England, you know, take their football on the road away from Wembley. Um, for a long time, everybody would say this, Preston's been in the doldrums. Um, some people refer to it as Depreston and uh, sometimes you drive in there on a Saturday morning and it looks depressing. Um, there's two ways of looking at Preston. So for years, the roadworks going into Preston have been horrendous. And I mean horrendous, like an hour to get out of, the, uh, of Preston or to get into it. Why um, do you take the train then? Um, well, because the trains are unreliable and have been for a long time. It's mainly when I'm, uh, it's, uh, mainly when I'm picking or dropping off my daughter. Um, so that's the reason why I'm driving in there. But, uh, it, but, but you could argue that the roadworks hint at ambition because they're trying to improve, you know, ultimately, the way in and the way out of Preston. They've got a two-year improvement scheme on Preston's Frygate North and Ringway. So that's due to finish uh, anytime soon. But that's uh, two years of misery. A lot of shopkeepers and businesses in the area say it's decimated their trade, but hopefully better times around the corner. There is a project called Animate, a £45 million project, which will include a Hollywood Bowl, cinema and restaurants, and uh, will improve the centre. And it's worth making a point as well, Preston North End are top of the championship. So there oh. is a bit of a feel-good factor oh. in Preston. Oh, I wish you hadn't reminded me of that. <laughs> I can't do with North End. Yeah. I really can't. Um, yeah, I had a hard hat high-vis tour, which is a new feature I've done on the business desk. You like that, the hard hat high-vis tour? It's not but, easy to say, though, is it? Pardon? It's not easy to say. No, but it's basically someone showing you around a, um, a regeneration or redevelopment project. And I did in Preston. Do you know why it's called Animate, by the way? Why they've chosen that name? No, I don't, no. no it's because of a link. Nick Park, the founder of Ardman Animations and Wallace and Gromit. It's kind of a tribute to him. And there's a, some really nice street furniture, street art and statues with Wallace and Gromit on. And, um, yeah, Michael Conlan, who, Conlan, who is the founder of Conlan, the chairman of Conlan Construction, which was his father's business, um, 
he took me around the Harris Gallery, which is going to be pretty spectacular, actually, mm. when it's done up. So big props to Preston. So there are some good things happening. Little known facts as well. Keith Ingham, the architect of Preston Bus Station. What do you think of that, by the Preston Bus Station? Well, I mean, that was the suicide Six capital of whatever, wasn't it? There was 60s brutalism. Yeah, it's, 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 it's horrendous. Well, Keith Ingham, the architect, was the stepdad of one of my mates when I was growing up in Lancaster, Russ Coleman. And, he, and Keith got me reading Private Eye and listening to Radio 4. It's like a trip down memory lane for it you, is. this, isn't it? It is, yeah. Anyway, before we go to the break, you want to talk about why you think we're now on an election footing. Yeah, what we try and do with Northern Spain is we try and focus on the North. And I think sometimes we're probably both guilty of it. We focus too much on national politics and can't provide any insight. But I think but it's look worth... Look what we've just done on Preston. Absolutely. But look at um, if you look at what's happening in the last week. You know, I've complained for a long time that... You know, and we spoke about the Mingvar strategy. Labour are so concerned about not, you know, you know, taking their eye off the ball and um, dropping a Horlicks that they don't say anything. They're just waiting for the Conservatives to lose the election, which they're doing a very good job of doing. I think Keir Starmer has finally recognised the fact that he's got to actually, you know, stand up and start talking about stuff and putting some meat on the bone. So last week he headed to Europol and uh, he put forward his solution to the small boats crisis, which prompted criticism from unions, charities, Tory MPs and the Daily Mail. And I don't think he's worried about any of that, actually. I think what he's trying to appear is a bit of a, a grown-up... Um, he's talking about grown-up politics. He's, he wants to be seen as a government-in-waiting. I think you've also got... Uh, I mean, this week, we're recording this on Monday. He's due to go to Paris um, see Emmanuel Macron. I think he's just been over to Canada as well. So I think you're going to see more and more of this. Meanwhile, Rishi Sunak, described as an action man by Starmer at PMQs last week, was at a hospital in Devon where he admitted the government might not hit its waiting list targets, pointing the blame firmly, I think, at the uh, the strikes as well. I just get the impression that Starmer's being a bit bolder, a bit more ambitious, and he's he's willing to say things now because he recognises that um, he's probably been a bit timid. What do you think? Um, yeah, I think uh, he's due to meet Macron in uh, Paris this week as he tries to appear, as you say, more statesmanlike. Last week he met Justin Trudeau, the Prime Minister of Canada, at what the Daily Express hilariously called the International Wokery Convention in Montreal. Where was my invite? Um, I just want to share an observation by Andrew Marr in the New Statesman about uh, Keir Starmer, which I thought was quite, quite incisive. He said, it was a long, long profile, and this was kind of wrapping things up at the end, and he clearly spoken to loads of people who'd known him, worked with him in his inner circle. And he said, I think he would make a far better prime minister than a party leader. People who know him well say his best quality is his temperament. He doesn't agonise over personal slights or hostile newspaper headlines. Good. Compared to other political leaders, he has very little ego. He gives others credit and is calm. I mean, you kind of want that in a leader, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think what he's... Where I like uh, where he's coming from is he's willing to tackle the issue a bit more about Brexit now and accept that we have got to work closer with our European counterparts. Yeah, and you need to be a statesman in order to do that. Yeah. That's good. So let's go to the break and hear a little word about our new sponsor, Assets Capital. Mm -hmm. 
Assets Capital is a leading Manchester-based independent specialist lender who, for the last 10 years, have supported UK SME, house builders, property investors and business owners to achieve their ambitions. Having lent over £1.7 billion to date and with ambitious growth plans, assets are well on their way to breaking through the £2 billion of lending as they embark on the next phase of their journey. They have a dedicated team of property professionals and lending specialists who pride themselves on getting to know their customers and being with them on every step of the journey. If you need a straightforward, no-nonsense lending partner with a proven track record, contact Andrew Charnley and the team at Assets Capital. Big enough to matter, small enough to care. Welcome back to part two of Northern Spin, and this is the bit we call Anything to See Here. Where are we starting, Chris? Well, we're going to talk about polls and the validity of election polls. So you shared a map on our WhatsApp group from an organisation called Nowcast showing Labour at the next general election with 409 seats. That's a gain of more than 200. The Tories was just 168. The Lib Dems at 26. And the SNP as well are uh, going to take a bit of a hiding. Anything to see here or just a load of old bump? No, I don't think it's a load of old bump. I think it's uh, it's highly geared uh, electoral mathematics. There's only one Tory seat in the North West going to survive on those numbers. Even Tatton, George Osborne's old constituency, turns red. And Macclesfield, Pendle and Clitheroe in the Ribble Valley, a new constituency. Altrincham and Sale West, Sir Graham Brady's seat, which obviously he's retiring from. Proper Tory areas turning to Labour. That also means a crumbling of the Red Wall, like aerated concrete in a in a school. Burnley, Haywood and Middleton, all the Boltons, Berry North. Goodbye, Jake Berry and Rossendale, Chris. You'd be gutted about that one. Mm. So yeah, I think a combination of boundary changes. So do you know which is the only Tory constituency that's in the northwest that's going to survive? Well, yeah, I would have said Tatton, and I think mm. Tatton will stay conservative. Um, which one would it be? It's filed apparently. See, I, don't, I, I think it's overblown. I think they've, they've adopted a uniform swing. Both Hazelgrove and Cheadle will go Lib Dem on those numbers, which I don't doubt, particularly as one of the MPs is standing down. Um, I think they've got Tim Farron as well to lose his constituency in the Lake District. Again, I find that unlikely because I don't think what they've done correctly is priced in certain local, local contests and con- contexts. I think what... The impression I'm getting is for Labour to get a majority at the next election, they would need to have a swing similar to what um, Tony Blair got in 1997. It's huge. So actually, becoming the biggest party probably is a given. Becoming the majority party is likely. This is what it trans. The, the point is, this is what a big swing translates to, and that's what makes you think, "Wow, yeah, it, it's eminently doable." It's going to ultimately come down to money. Tory donors aren't going to throw loads of money at saving the Tory party if they don't think they're actually going to survive and get into government and they're going to get any favours for it. And, and Tory activists aren't going to put their time and efforts on the line if they think actually they're doomed. Got a bit of a confession I, 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 was, I was looking around in our constituency and, you know, it's, it's about four Tories. Yeah, I, I've got a bit of a confession to make. I think sometimes we can be too close to it and we can be in our own little bubble. I remember when the Brexit vote came about... And I was hosting event after event after event. I was speaking to business people and I said to them, right, hands up if you're going to vote for Brexit. And no hands went up. The odd one went up in a room of 100 people. People asked me, do you think we'll vote for Brexit? I said, no, definitely not. I said, because people realised the impact it would have on trade. 
But what you didn't factor in, or what I didn't factor in, is what real people, you know, who, who didn't have any skin in the game and were just believed the lies that they were peddled by Boris Johnson et al. I hosted a round table, because I mentioned I hosted a lot of events last week, and I did the one with a lot of business leaders, about a dozen people in the room, and I said to him, I said, look, oh, you'll be interested, I must have plugged the Northern Spin podcast 5,000 times last week. And I said, I said to him, I said, if there was an election tomorrow, who would you vote for? So of these super intelligent... You, you know, know, it's really rude to ask people who they vote for. It's no, no, no. It's a private thing at the ballot box. A lot of people are sh- what they call shy Tories or shy socialists. Well, actually don't want to admit it in polite company. It was it was because your large personality will dominate the conversation, and people might be intimidated into admitting what their true feelings are one way or the other. I think you've got to be slightly careful about that as a scientific polling. No, I'm not suggesting measure. a scientific poll. I don't think you can have a scientific poll from a straw poll of twelve people. I think what I was trying to get from them was a bit of a gauge in terms of where what their political thinking was. What I found uh, interesting is three of them said that they just won't vote at all because they just don't feel connected at all to politics. I think one of them, you know, is a m- member of the Tory party. Um, but the, the, the other eight were, some people would describe them as floating voters, other people would describe them as disinterested, ambivalent, keeping their cards to the chest. The th- interesting thing was, none of them said anything positive about Keir Starmer and the Labour Party. And, to be fair, none of them said anything positive about Rishi Sunak and the Conservative Party as well. There was just a feeling that you know, it's going to be bad and we can't wait for politics and politicians to make our life any better. We've got to do it ourselves as entrepreneurs. That's what I thought was interesting. Yeah, it is. That is very interesting. I think Labour are in that position where there is an anti-politics feeling around. You know, they don't want to reduce what they're hope, planning for the country to a soundbite for, you know, hope or, you know, the, we've talked about this before, the Barack Obama hope agenda reducing everything to a cheek slogan, be that, you know, make Britain great again or build back better or get Brexit done. You know, I think we're, we're past all that, that kind of hucksterish gimmickry that Johnson, Trump and, and that the, the like have demeaned politics. Mm. So I think they're dealing with reality and being really straight with the British people. I hope so anyway. Yeah. But at the same time, they're going to disappoint a lot of people because there ain't any money about. No, absolutely. Absolutely. I need to ask you uh, another one. Rishi Sunak blasted flip-flopping Keir Starmer after Labour vowed to block his plans to scrap EU-era um, environmental rules to boost house building. So he's been perceived and painted out as to be the person who's saying no to more house building. Anything to see here? Yeah, I think it's a double-edged political bear trap, if I may be so bold. I don't know if that's a technical pol- political term. It's not about being against house building. It's about not trusting the water companies to have the infrastructure to not pump sewage into rivers and into the uh, and, and to actually create proper infrastructure, could you imagine the Ferrari if Labour had gone the other way on that debate? No, I, but I, this is why I mentioned I think we're very much on an election footing because you're going to see more and more of these these bear traps hoping to catch Keir Starmer out and his um, shadow cabinet. There's another one I want to ask you about, which is a bit closer to home. Um, the Labour Party suspended its leadership team in Bolton North East after a row over who should represent the party at the next general election. We've spoken about this a lot, haven't we? Anything to see here? Yeah, apparently it seemed quite heavy-handed, and the local um, management team of the Bolton uh, North East constituency Labour Party have said, hold on a minute, they're getting rid of the wrong people here. We've sorted out our local difficulties. Um, it does seem quite heavy-handed. The regional party have also taken control of the selection process in Stockport, taking over from a far-left-dominated selections and deselections by the local government campaign group there, which cost Labour the council, frankly, 
as a result of their pointless harassment of good councillors in order to get a left-wing cuckoo in every nest, as they describe their strategy. So, yeah, who have we got on manoeuvres, Chris? Well, it's funny because um, I always speak to people and I always say, what part of um, what part of Northern Spins do you like the most? And most people say they like my jokes. Um, but beyond that, they say they like on manoeuvres, where we identify people who we think are, uh, you know, uh, just you know positioning themselves in a favourable position. You know what? I read the Times this morning and they actually used the phrase, this is the Labour Party on manoeuvres in relation to them wooing lots of people in the city. And they've clearly taken that straight off the Northern Spin podcast. Um, so Go I'm going to give you a name first of all, Gary Neville. Oh. Definitely, definitely Gary. becoming more, in, he's becoming more outspoken on politics. He did a really interesting thing, actually. You know, I'm a big fan of women's football, but uh, he uh, swapped his mobile phone with Jill Scott, the lioness, and uh, she tweeted as him and he tweeted as her uh, during a couple of games. And they highlighted some of the abuse that um, that she got yeah. um, and that he got, you yeah. know, when they were posing, and it's just it's just misogynistic, um, sexist bile, and I think that's where Gary Neville does really well. So tell me about his row with Jake Berry because that yeah. passed me by. I don't really spend much time on X. No, I don't. Name? I don't spend much time on X. Uh, but um, but go on. Basically, the former Tory chairman tweeted. The next time you can't see a doctor, your kids can't go to a school and your train doesn't turn up, remember Labour's plan is to give even more power to those who are trying to hold Britain uh, to ransom. Now, that argument might work if you could actually currently see a doctor, your kids could go to a school without it falling down and your train did turn up on time, none of which are currently happening. And that prompted a withering put down by Gary Neville who accused the Tories of undermining every single public service. He also shared a stage, I think last week, with Alistair Campbell um, I think you're going to see more and more interventions from people like Gary Neville. Definitely on manoeuvres, but probably because, well, he's a member of the Labour Party. Well, good. So I, I read Gary Neville's book over the summer about the football business, which I was exhausted by in the end, I have to say. What was his... Um, cause Cause he's, he's, he's absolutely relentless on everything, isn't he? It's just like, in the end, you just give up. His business is called Relentless. Um, I know, I know. But, um, but, but a lot of people would point towards the money he spent at Salford City and say, actually... He's paying people a lot of money to play for Salford City who are playing in, I think, was it Tier 1? Yeah. Uh, the yeah. second name this week is somebody who we're huge fans of, both of us, because we launched the Northern Spring podcast during her tenure as PM, and that's Liz Truss. Oh, now, we're recording this on Monday. She's giving a speech today. Um, no long words, probably. She's trying to rewrite the history books. I mean, if you want a reminder of what Liz Truss is all about, have a look at your mortgage statement and just have a look at how much it went up by because of her trustonomics and her disastrous, you know, mini budget. She's going to claim this week that the um, that her economic plan would have saved the government thirty five billion. It's absolutely embarrassing, as is the fact that she's got a new book called 10 Years to Save the World. She couldn't last 50 days as the Prime Minister. It's an absolute disgrace. She's on manoeuvres. Yeah, agree with that. She definitely thinks her ideas were stymied by a left-wing establishment of bond traders in the city, the Bank of England and the House of Lords. Unbelievable. Yep, she's got a book out and her ill-thought-through, small-state, tax-cutting nonsense is the hope of all the nutters in the Tory party that they're clinging to. It's amazing. This is all about the battle for the soul of the Tory party when they lose the election. They're not going to move to the centre. They're going to move even further to the right. It's just which right is it? Is it the free market, um, small state right, or is it going to be the swashbuckling thick right of Lee Anderson who just want to build stuff and... Yeah. You're right, you're right. There, she's, trying That's to plant, what it's about. she's trying to plant a seed now in terms of what direction the Conservative Party goes after the next general election. Yeah. 
and she wants to be she wants to be involved in that. I mean, she's not doing any. I haven't heard any any uh, interviews yet. So she's just trying to create this rhetoric. And when she's trying to rewrite the history books, I don't like it, and I don't like her. Somebody I do quite like actually, though, is a leader of the Commons, Penny Morden. She's oh, you've name. got such a soft spot for a posh Tory. <laughs> no, I haven't. I just oh, think she's a character. Penny, the twinkle um, in your eye when you talk about Penny Morden. No, I'm, there is no twinkle in my oh. eye at all. It's just my eye. Um, she loves a soundbite though, because I think she's a bit mischievous. She's, uh, she's got a load of cats as well, actually, and I've got a lot of cats as well. So maybe that's why I've got a certain soft spot for her. But um, the, I listen to newscast on BBC Radio 5 Live, and they do the credits at the beginning and the, uh, the intro, and they use a quote that she famously gave when Liz Truss was briefly Prime Minister, and AWOL, and she said, the Prime Minister is not under a desk, knowing how that would play out. So this week, um, Keir Starmer you know, called um, Rishi Sunak uh, in action man. And she responded by describing uh, him as Keir Starmer as Beach Ken and said he had zero balls. Now, she knows what she's doing, doesn't she? Uh, yeah, now I've seen the film Barbie. You're going to see it this week with your family, aren't you? Uh, no, it's just it's just me, actually. Oh, you're going on your own? <laughs> well, yeah, I'll be there at the back with a popcorn. Yeah, no. for the purpose of research, no. Michael. Yeah, she doesn't know what she's doing. My hunch, though, is that I... Th- I I don't think the wider public like all this name calling, the nicknames and the banter. And I know we're as responsible for it with Simon Seven Weeks Clark and (laughs) Ben Blocker Houch and and all the other cast of characters. But I must admit, I winced when I heard Keir Starmer taunt Sunak as inaction man. It is stooping to the level of Boris Johnson and his Captain Hindsight and flip-flopping and Ken and all of that sort of stuff. I don't like it. I don't think the public like it. And I think it's dragging politics ever more into the gutter. And you, on that note, we'll go on. I was just going to say, do you not think, though, that this, you know, taunts like an action man and everything else, they're only playing to their own MPs. They're not playing to the public at large. Of course, no, of course they're playing to the public at large. That's what it's all about. Yeah, I quite like the inaction man. I know you do. Line, and yeah. I just got a feeling that's going to stick. But it, this is like you having banter with a wicketkeeper at your cricket match, isn't it? You love all that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, that was uh, that was X-rated. But uh, yeah. anyway, anyway, on that note, we're going to go to a quick break. I've always believed that a vibrant media sits at the heart of any community and the business community is no different. So if you're in business, then the businessdesk.com is for you. We're up with the lark every morning to bring you the day's business news. We have regular events, credible news, and lots and lots of other events to bring people in the business community together. So log on now, thebusinessdesk.com for all your regional news. Welcome back to part three of the Northern Spin podcast. Now, Michael, we've both been busy, busy, busy. Uh, what do you want to talk about this week? I wanted to talk about my T-shirt, actually. It says New Berlin. Do you know what it's a reference to? Something to do with Stockport, isn't it? It is. So, yeah, Luke Unabomber, once, uh, descri- who's a DJ, lives in Stockport, described uh, the, my hometown as the New Berlin, and people have adopted it. So have you, Do you ever it wear a tie? in massive breach of copyright of New Balance, but I like it. It's a would, nice T-shirt. Would you ever wear a tie again? No. Never? So we can Well, I did when I worked at Blackburn Rovers, and now I don't. I probably won't again, unless I was, you know, a dignitary coming in, or I was uh, dressing up for a special occasion, but for work, no, nah, I never do. Okay. No. Nah. Uh, anyway, I'm going to start by asking you... 
about that lump underneath your right eye. Did somebody finally have enough of your ridiculous dad jokes and smack you in the face? No, I would like to. Uh, I'd like to say that was the case, but uh, no, sadly it wasn't. No, I played cricket at the weekend, last game of the season. It's funny. There's a lot of club cricketers listen to us actually, and uh, the season. It's uh, there's no hiding place over the course of a season. But for the first time in my life, at the age of 51, I actually got hit by a cricket ball in the face. I just got an inside edge onto my pad and it reared up and it hit me on the cheekbone. I've got absolutely no sympathy off anybody. Uh, I've got scratches down my leg as well because I took a catch and I, my, the studs from my shoes you know, gouged out my leg. Um, so one thing I do want to mention, actually, uh, much more upbeat than that, is I went to a comedy night. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my brother came up uh, and his girlfriend and I took my kids along as well and my wife and I said, I'm going to promise you a comedy night you won't forget. And I took him to Standish Social Club which was very, very interesting. You don't get more northern than that, Michael, let's be honest. Was it, was it like the Phoenix? It was, it was interesting. The thing with, if you like comedy, and I do, it's, it was a social club, so it didn't necessarily lend itself to comedy. It wasn't that intimate sort of section. Um, I think what it does do is it sort of really showcases really good comedians. There was a guy called Lopez, uh, a Spanish comedian. He was the first up. He was absolutely brilliant. Uh, two other comedians, but they didn't. Uh, they weren't as good as the first guy. But it was good fun. I enjoyed it. Hundred people in the room. A few jokes that I could share. Good. Um, you going to share any of them with us? Can you remember what they were? Yeah, there was one guy who said that uh, he was a second comedian on, and he said, "You know what? He's very posh." Said, "I went to public school, only got three GCSEs. Only got three GCSEs. What I want to talk about is that I was a boarder. Um, thing is, I couldn't understand why I was a boarder. For me, parents only lived twenty minutes away, but I still got to see my parents when they picked up my brother." So that's the reason I'm not a comedian for, but that made me laugh. Um, Timing, eh? Timing. What about you? Any uh, podcast recommendations? Any things you want to talk about? Yeah, I do. So I went to the cinema last night, Sunday night, to indulge the guiltiest of my guilty pleasures, violent British gangster films. In this case, Rise of the Foot Soldier, um, Vengeance, which is the sixth film in that franchise. It is absurd, violent and unknowingly funny. And it does feature Craig Fairbrass, who I think is a massively underrated actor. Go do your Craig Fairbrass accent, because, you know, listeners of the podcast do like your accents. You know good slag. <laughs> what, is that directed at me or anybody else? Yeah, it's very much aimed at you. Anyway, any podcasts? Yeah, I listened to a few this week. Um, we were talking on WhatsApp about the new Ed Balls and George Osborne podcast, Political Currency. See, I think the, the genre has sort of been set by uh, Alistair Campbell and Rory Stewart. You know, two opposing politicians from different parties who've got slightly different views but they are really warm and then Ed Balls and George Osborne have come together George Osborne isn't funny um, I think Ed Balls is probably a slightly warmer character as well and I listened to the trailer which I didn't like because it was too matey it was too hey look at us boys we were two enemies over the dispatch box now we've got a podcast isn't this great I listened to the first show and I want to give it a fair crack and there was definitely more insight there than there was over the first one, but they, there wasn't the warmth that you had with Rory Stewart and Alistair Campbell. The Sunday Times described it as political currency podcast review. Bulls and Osborne are a shadow of former selves. Is there a worry that they're creating this formulaic podcast? There's two middle-aged white guys doing a podcast. Maybe we aren't the best people to comment, but what's your take on it? Um, I think it's a very crowded market. You've got to have your own distinctive something to say i think we have with our northern angle which is a bit niche but i think we make it work um i only really care about what we can do rather than comment on anybody else's um i haven't got time to listen to absolutely every podcast out there it is important that we keep keep uh, abreast of the developments in that world though and um 
I was a bit surprised that they came out with it, to be honest with you. I think the problem with that one is it's two politicians. Yeah. That I think you yeah. know that's why the other one works for. Um, quick uh, book reference as well. This will come as no surprise, but um, Richard Osman, uh, Richard Osman, who's, who's really reinvented himself as an author, he came up with this idea called the Thursday Murder Club. He's, I think he's on his fourth book now. It's just come out last week called The Last Devil to Die. Uh, and it's just a, if you've never read it, you're in for a treat, but it's basically people in a retirement home who decide to set up a Thursday murder club. And all it, the, 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 the enjoyment is in the detail. Um, I, I can recommend that one. Do you think murdering people's fun, do you? Well, the thing is, I like true crime, and I've got so many podcasts which I've referenced on this podcast before, but this is, this is if you can make murder fun, this is fun, um, but you won't know what I mean unless you've read the book. So, uh, The okay. Last Devil to Die. So, if you like true crime, are you, are you aware of the kind of the, the origin story of the Rise of the Foot Soldier series that it's based on the murder of two or three guys in a Range Rover in a lay-by in Essex? Yeah. Uh, the, yeah, Retton, yeah, yeah. the Rettenden Range Rover murders of Pat Tate and Tony Tucker. Yeah, no, I remember that. I remember that uh, that murder. It was up a. Uh, it was up. A, it was up a like a dirt track, wasn't in, it? In a, in a woods in Essex. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they'd been in there for hours and end. Did they ever catch the culprits? Apparently so. Yeah, but okay. speculation. They got the wrong geezer. You've had some feedback from um, one of our regular listeners, Ian yeah, from Mellor. Yeah, we've had. Um, um, we had a message, yeah, we had a message from Ian from Mellor, one of our listeners who lives in my local area. He was very cross that I am too soft on William Ragg, our Conservative MP in the Hazel Grove constituency. He's the invisible man, says Ian. He's never around. He never responds. He's a waste of space. And I have to say, actually, that is not a unique view of our MP in the constituency. To be fair to him, he, is, uh, he has announced he's leaving Parliament, so he's looking obviously for something new to do. He's had his own mental health challenges. He's had time off work. and uh, But he, I think the point that uh, Ian is making is he's not visible. So it was the annual food and drink festival in Marple on Saturday. Street stores all the way up uh, Market Street, which is great. And there was no sign of William Rag anywhere. No sign of any of the four local Tories who you sometimes see on Twitter with their new candidate, Paul Athens. Yet the Lib Dem candidate, who I hold no particular torch for, was very visible, very involved, walking around, talking to people. Um, so, yeah, I think that's uh, quite telling, really. You've always been, full disclosure, you've always been very generous about William Ragg, because obviously you stood for uh, Parliament in 2015 against yeah. William Ragg, and yeah. he beat you. Um, but you've spoken about the fact you've had some good conversations, and you have mentioned his mental health and you've wished him all the best i think it's i think it's interesting because so many conservative mps have announced they're not standing at the next general election and there's going to be a real question mark as to whether or not they literally are demob and you just don't see them but i think it's really important for us as a podcast that we put both sides of the story you know yeah do you know two of our listeners also live in a flat above his office i, I was trying to encourage them to take up irish dancing on fridays <laughs> when he was up in the constituency but he's not been seen so there's no point Anyway, we had a lively debate on the business desk last week and on my LinkedIn feed about high streets following a story I did about the aftermath of Wilco collapsing, Vaughan Allen of CityCo, who I've done a podcast with in the past, and Matt Baker of the Institute for Place Management at Manchester Met University. I had a very polite exchange of views about crime, retail and high streets in the comments section. I think some high streets are dying, genuinely. Hyde, for one, which is quite near where I live, and they need a real recalibration of purpose. I don't know. What do you think about where 
there are places around your 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 locality retail is definitely changing shoplifting seems to have been decriminalized by the police who simply won't call out and come and visit a scene of a crime if it's for a value of less than 200 quid i i am not a shopper i'm not i thought you're gonna say you're not a shoplifter no i'm not a shoplifter or a shopper um but i'm not a shopper but i i look at I went to Ormskirk recently. Um, I'm quite a functional shopper. I go, I'm in and out like a, like the SAS, you know, and I don't mess about. But if you go, I mean, we've mentioned it before, Altrincham um, is great. Well, um, Altrincham is, is the good example of somewhere that's reinvented itself. Yeah, right? yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, you, we've mentioned Preston on the podcast earlier. Where would you go to actually relax, have a good time? Where are the coffee bars? Where's the independence? Chorley's works hard. But if you speak to Chorley or people in Chorley, they'll say it's full of charity shops. Yeah. Um, I hate the rise and rise of vapes, vape shops as well, with their crude messaging to try and target kids as well. So you're absolutely right. I think um, I think I think retail centres have got to have a purpose, and if they've not got a purpose, then they're then they're doing something wrong. I like local authorities that offer free parking for a period of time as well, because you've got to offer something to try to bring people in. Um, but um, yes, yeah, that, that is one of the examples that's been used. Um, have you been to Blackburn recently? No, I just go in and out to the footy. I have to say. Yeah. Why? What do you think? Um, well, I uh, I went um, recently. What I find what I find interesting is city centres where there are very few places to park or it's easy to park. I find that's a scares off motorists, and uh, and you get stuck in a one way system, and uh, you know. Like, I found Blackburn not the easiest place to uh, navigate myself around. And I worry about driving down bus lanes and getting hit with fines. That's what scares me. Do you know what? There are th the three worst words in politics when politicians talk about groups of people that I dislike more than anything else, in, in reverse order of how much I dislike them. Taxpayers, right? That's appealing to people's base instincts. The second is motorists particularly when you hear Tories talking about the motorist, Labour's war on the motorist. Mm. And the one I hate more than any other is expat. Expat. Yeah. Mm. You don't talk about expat, expat Afghanis and Iraqis living in this country, do you? No. But it's always expat in Spain or Cyprus or wherever. Anyway, we'll talk about that on a future episode. Yep. Anyway, culture-wise, my lunch of the month so far is the medium falafel wrap that I got from Go Falafel, which I thought was great, all preparation for my holiday in Israel. And that's all for episode three of season five of Northern Spin. Don't you think it's great, though, that we have these podcasts and people are talking about all sorts of highbrow things, but we go to this area of subject, go falafel. Go falafel. That should be. Maybe we can get them to sponsor Northern we should Spin. Do. We yeah, go we falafel. absolutely should. If you do want to sponsor the Northern Spin podcast, go falafel, you know where to get in touch. We're on Apple Podcasts. Please review us. Don't forget to press the subscribe button. Follow us on Twitter at northern underscore spin one or watch us on youtube thank you to what media for recording this podcast thank you to our sponsors fi real estate management and assets capital special mention to elliot taylor for providing his musical accompaniment new beginnings my name is michael taylor my name as ever is chris mcguire